I'm really excited to see so many faces out here tonight. Uh, this is probably by far the largest meetup we've had since I've joined the Toronto Transhumanists. Um, so uh, we got a great speaker lined up for you. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank our host, Wrangle, uh, for providing this great space. I'm hoping this will become the new home for the Toronto Transhumanists, if, as long as we all behave. <laughs> And I'd like to extend a special welcome to our friends from the Space Channel who are here for, they're gonna be recording the event tonight. So, hey, Michelle and crew. <laughs> uh, so my co-organizer, Aga, and Nick and I were at the Space Channel earlier today to record uh, an interview for the Inner Space Show. So look for that next week. Uh, I'd like to bring up Aga now to introduce our speaker. Hey guys. Oh, well, transhumanism about augmenting humanity, right? So this is a start. I just want to, before introducing Nicola, say that this is a relaunch of a meetup, and it's great to see all of you here. The subjects that we are all are interested in are getting more and more seriously involved in humans' life on a daily basis, so it's more understandable for majority of people now to talk about artificial intelligence and other things. So tell your friends, tell the people who you may think that might be interested so we can bring everybody here together and have a good sessions of public education about technology and where we are all headed. And with that, I'm in, uh, introducing Nikola Danilov, who has been named as one of the elite sources for artificial intelligence and technology. And uh, we're all excited to hear Nicola and um, listening to parts of his new book, Conversations with the Future. Please give it up for Nicola. Thanks very, very much to everyone who uh, came today. Basically, uh, I have to also say, by the way, thank you very much to Aga and to David without whom this meetup would not have happened. Uh, we had a few years of regularly organizing this meetup and Christine Gaspar was the one organizing it and we had great fun and many, many nice meetups. But then as life happens, she had uh, some health priorities to take care of and unfortunately the meetup fell apart. So now we're kind of rejuvenating it and this is a very good start and a good momentum. So hopefully things are going to only get better from here on. Um, and also to tell you about the structure of, the, of the, our meetup today. So basically, I plan to talk about uh, only about 35 minutes. Then we're going to have a brief period of Q&A between me, Aga, and David. And then we're going to open up the floor. And that's, to be honest with you, the part that I'm the most interested in personally. My book is called Conversations with the Future. So I don't want it to be a monologue. I don't want to stay here and talk by myself like a crazy person. However, there are three things that we may find interesting today, and you tell me if I'm wrong or not. Um, so the first part of my 35 minutes will be very briefly just to tell you how I got to do what I'm doing today. Because it's a, some people have told me it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to know. The second, uh, which is basically the foreword of my book. The second part is the introduction of my book, which is 
the reason why. Why I wrote this book, what is it about, and what you can learn from it. And the third part and the longest part would be actually my book's epilogue, uh, which is called The Future Will Find Us, But Will We Find the Future? And this is, I think, the most important part of all, all the parts that we have today. So uh, this is the part where I hope that we would all take something to think of to later on, but also to ask questions and discuss later on. So without further ado, oh, by the way, um, two other things that I just need to mention. These two books uh, would go home with two of you tonight. Uh, as I promised on the Meetup group, I would give two books away to the two people who brought the largest number of other people with them. So we'll figure out who that is at the end of these 35 minutes. There are going to be also more books available in the back. Uh, my wife can help, help you with that. Um, unfortunately, I could only bring 20 books, so, uh, but their paper and we transhumanists are generally very much high tech, so I imagine many of you already got the ebook. But if you want paper and if you want it signed, you have it available there. I do print them in the United States, so they're not coming from China. Uh, they're pretty much American currency, and uh, they come large format and over 500 pages, so they're not cheap, but uh, you, I, I believe it's worth it, so you hopefully would agree with me. Anyway, without further ado, let me start by uh, sharing my uh, personal story, how I got to do what I do by reading the introduction. <coughs> So, in 2007, I was a master's degree student in political science looking for an interesting topic to write my thesis on. I was tired of World War I and World War II research papers and wanted to do something different, something that not everyone was familiar with, something fresh where I could dare to make a contribution. One day, as I was watching the news coming from Iraq and Afghanistan, I decided to look into drone warfare. Doing research on military drones pushed me into the field of artificial intelligence and I discovered Ray Kurzweil's seminal book, The Singularity is Near. That book completely blew my mind and made me realize that much of science fiction is quietly but surely becoming science fact. By an immense stroke of luck, the very next book I read was Charlie Stross's science fiction novel, Accelerando. Consequently, I knew I would never look at the world in the same way ever again. Little did I realize that not only my worldview, but also my life was about to go into a whole new and unexpected trajectory. I completed my master's degree in 2009 and, ended the, ended and entered the army of unemployed job seekers at the peak of the recession. I stopped counting after I sent 300 resumes, though I kept sending even more thereafter. I got one interview, which apparently didn't go very well because they never called me back. One of my applications, however, went to the first and the only blog dedicated um, to the technological singularity, which is called the Singularity Hub. And the hub at the time was looking to hire a staff writer. So given my education, past research, and writing skills, I thought I, I made the best possible candidate they could ever have. I eagerly anticipated an email telling me how totally perfect I was for the job, but that email never actually came. So after a couple of weeks of waiting in vain, 
it slowly started to dawn on me that I wasn't getting that job either. Then a crazy thought occurred to me. Maybe, just maybe, I didn't need them. Perhaps there was some tiny chance I might be able to do it entirely on my own. I could start my own Singularity website. I mean, how hard could it be? I started by learning HTML, and I was very scared. You see, I was a political science and philosophy student who knew nothing, absolutely nothing, in fact, about programming or web design. In fact, I had no technical knowledge of any kind whatsoever. So how could I ever do this on my own? Despite my fears, I decided to give it a try. It took me three months to put up my first single most horrible homepage on my very first domain called singularitysymposium.com. After another three months, I had a somewhat reasonable, though very simple web design and about 60 pages up. During those first six months, I was getting about 50 to 100 visitors per month, including my friends and family. So looking back, it's no surprise that I felt lonely and depressed about the quality of the work that I was putting up and the amount of web traffic I was able to attract. In October 2009, or six months after my first website went live, I discovered WordPress. See, WordPress at the time was totally revolutionary because you didn't need to know HTML anymore. So if you could type text into any word processing software, you could build a web blog. Web blogs, or blogs for short, were starting to explode in popularity, and many major brands were beginning to embrace them because they were so much easier to create, maintain, and update than traditional websites. I embraced WordPress and the blog format and launched singularityweblog.com. Another six months had passed, and I was getting comfortable with blogging, but the new media format at the time that was taking off was now podcasting. Podcasting was scarier for me than blogging, because it required audio gear and technical knowledge that I didn't have. Plus, the idea of podcasting, that is to say, to say sharing my voice with the world, uh, was playing on all my insecurities arising from my strong Bulgarian accent. I mean, who am I to start telling people to listen to me, and why would they bother anyway? I was not really an expert to begin with, and I could never speak perfect English without a strange foreign accent. The insane thought that I might actually be sitting in front of a camera someday was not even remotely in my realm of possibilities at that time. However, despite my fears and challenges, I decided to give it a try because there was no other podcast focusing on what I thought were some of the most important issues of our time. Those of the technological singularity, transhumanism, exponential technology, and the future of humanity. In essence, I decided to give it a try anyway. The first interview I ever did was a total disaster, so much so that I failed to even record it. And as embarrassed as I was, I had to ask my generous guest, James Harvey, to give me a second chance and redo the whole thing again. That second attempt was actually successful, at least in the sense that I actually had an audio file after the end of the interview. With that file, the first episode of my podcast went live. One of the things that I quickly discovered was that it is hard to do an interview uh, without any visual contact or body language to facilitate communication. 
To address that problem, I started using Skype and began recording both webcam video feeds. Once I had those videos, I thought that I might as well use them and publish them, imperfect as they may be. After doing dozens of Skype video interviews, an anonymous podcast fan asked me to consider offering in-person interviews and donated money for my first camcorder. And actually, we used it to do the Hack Lab Toronto video tour with Derek. And I started slowly improving both the video and the audio quality of my interviews and doing in-person interviews when I could afford to do so. The next step came after Richard Sandville became my all-time most generous donor. All of my best and most popular episodes, uh, the ones with Michio Kaku, uh, Stuart Hameroff, and many, many others, the ones that are in the hundreds of thousands of views to half a million and up, they were all produced thanks to Richard or sponsored by him. So to wrap it up, basically seven years after its humble beginning, the Singularity FM podcast has had over four and a half million views on iTunes and YouTube, he has been featured on international TV networks as well as in some of the biggest blogs in the world, such as BBC, RTTV, TV Japan, io9, The Telegraph, The Huffington Post, ZDNet, Boing Boing. Now I can say The Space Channel too, by the way. <laughs> and many others. Today, the Singularity web blog is the biggest independent blog on technological singularity, transhumanism, exponential technology, and the future of humanity. The Singularity FM podcast is the first most popular and widely recognized interview series in the niche, which uh, actually is the reason why Professor uh, Roman Yampolsky called me the Larry King of the Singularity. So that's the foreword. Um, and uh, that's kind of my personal story. People have told me that I should start with that because they find it interested, interesting. So. Um, the introduction talks about why I decided to do this book, um, or what the book is more about. So introduction. If someone needs directions, quote, if someone needs directions, don't give them a globe. It will merely waste their time. But if someone needs to understand the way things are, don't give them a map. They don't need directions. They need to see the big picture. End of quote. That's what Seth Godin uh, that, that quote is from Seth Godin, and I also did an interview with him. Uh, he said actually quite a few nice things about me, which was amazing. Why the future adds zero and what this book is about. If you have ever been to a Hindu temple, you probably couldn't help but notice the pao pai sam, the rice pudding. Legend has it that the tradition of serving pao pai sam to visiting pilgrims started after a game of chess between an Indian king and the Lord Krishna himself. You see, the king was a big chess enthusiast and had the habit of challenging wise visitors to a game of chess. One day, a traveling sage was challenged by the king, and to motivate his opponent, the king offered any reward that the sage could name. The sage modestly asked just for a few grains of rice in the following manner. The king was to put a single grain of rice on the first chess square and then double it up on every consequent square of the chessboard. Of course, as it often happens in those legends, having lost the game and being a man of his word, the king ordered a bag of rice to be brought to the chessboard. Then he started 
placing rice grains according to the arrangement. One grain on the first square, two on the second, four on the third, eight on the fourth, 16 on the fifth, and then 32, 64, 128, 256, 512, 1024, and so on. Following the exponential growth of the rice payment, the king quickly realized that he was unable to fulfill his promise because on the 20th square, he would have had to put 1 million grains of rice on the board. On the 40th square, the king would have had to put 1 billion grains of rice. And finally, on the 64th square of the chessboard, the king would have had to put more than 18 billion trillion grains of rice, which is equal to about 210 billion tons. Now, 210 billion tons is allegedly sufficient to cover the whole territory of India with a meter-thick layer of rice. At 10 grains of rice per square inch, the above amount requires rice fields covering twice the surface area of the Earth, oceans included. So it was at this point that Lord Krishna revealed himself and revealed his true identity to the king and told him that he doesn't have to pay his debt immediately, but can do so over time. And that is why to this day visiting pilgrims to all those temples are still feasting on Pao Pai Sam, and the king's debt to Lord Krishna is being repaid. So you see, our world is a big global chessboard, and we all have a move to play, be it individually as private citizens or collectively as nations, businesses, and organizations. Yes, each of us is a tiny little grain of rice, but we live in a world of exponential change where our technology has a huge multiplier effect. So if for simplicity, all of our civilization is currently equal to one, then the future will not merely add another one so that we end up with a civilization of two. No, we live in a time of exponential technology and disruptive change. So the future will add a zero and we'll end up with 10 as in 10x. 10x as in 10 times more information coming at us 10 times faster for one tenth of the cost having 10 times bigger impact. And that means each of us will have 10 times more opportunities to make a dent in the universe, but also 10 times more dangers, 10 times more distractions and personal challenges, and we'll have to make decisions for one tenth of the time we had before. But of course, the future will not stand still and wait. It will keep adding even more zeros. So what is to be done? Should we try working faster, shifting through even sifting through even more information and squeezing more output from our primitive, primitive biological microprocessors. As the old Zen saying goes, meditate for 10 minutes every day. But if you're really, really busy, then do it for at least an hour. Likewise, speeding up is not the solution to accelerating change, at least not initially. Instead, what we need is the exact opposite. We ought to slow down, reestablish our priorities, and come up with a vision for the long run. A vision for our future, be it personally, as individuals, professionally, as entrepreneurs or employees, or collectively, as citizens and members of the human species. Once we have a vision for our future, we can start reverse engineering it and come up with a plan that will take us from where we are today to where we want to go tomorrow. That is what being proactive is all about. 
In contrast, being reactive is when we are constantly being hijacked by this or that crisis, and the future is something that simply happens to us. Thus the, thus the goal of this book is to motivate you to not let the future happen to you, but to be proactive and to create the future. As I said above, you need a vision and a plan, but again, do not let the future happen to you. Now, I'm not going to give you the vision, the vision or the plan to follow because those will be my vision and my plan, not yours. Plus, there is unfortunately no universal map to the future, and despite our amazing technology, you can't unfortunately buy a GPS to safely guide you there. Instead, I want to invite you to a symposium that I have created just for you, for free. A symposium where in a very relaxed and informal atmosphere, you can become part of our conversations with the future, alongside 20 of the most interesting and accomplished visionaries of our time. 20 in the book and 210 in the podcast for free. As you will see, each of those 20 visionaries will have a very strong view of what the future would or should be. And if I may take the liberty of making just one suggestion, it is this, beware of embracing a single point of view too tightly. In fact, this is why I have steered away from the concept of the technological singularity in the title of this book. Because no matter how powerful a concept the singularity is, in the end of the day, it is like a pair of colored glasses in front of our eyes, or like a single focal length prime lens in our photography kit. And yes, it is very useful to put colored glasses and use a prime lens every once in a while because they help us to see the world in a new light and take a sharper image of it. But it is even more useful to have the freedom to switch your glasses and change your lens with a different focal length so that you can see the world in yet another color and take a picture from a different angle and at a different level of magnification. If you have previously visited singularityweblog.com, you will not be surprised by the above arrangement because you probably already know that my blogging name is Socrates. And just like Socrates of Athens, my aim here is not to teach you anything and tell you what to do but rather to set up the environment where you will create your own vision of the future and your own plan to make it happen. Thus, at best, if I have done my job well, I'd be an intellectual midwife to you giving birth to your own ideas and your own vision of the future. But do not forget that the best way to predict the future is to actually create it. So do not be a passive observer and let the future happen to you. Find your vision, make a plan, and create your future. And ultimately, my goal here is that you leave our symposium inspired by a sufficiently strong why. Because if you uncover your why, like I did, then you can come up with, with and endure anyhow that life throws at you to make your own dent in the universe and create a better future, better you. So don't wait to read the story of the future. Instead, create the future and be the author of your own story. Having said that, if you like what you read, or even if you didn't, I'd love to hear from you, get to know you better, and hopefully find out what you gave birth to after this book. You can also post a picture or video on my Facebook wall, which there's links uh, to it. 
but the best way to start a relationship with me will be to visit singularity.info or my podcast singularity.fm. And you can also search for them on iTunes, uh, YouTube, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, most other places. There you can see in full all the original interviews this book is based on because these visions are not transcripts. Since I have had to cut and edit things to make, make them fit into a proper book format and size. And I can't wait to see the future you're going to create. So that's basically the introduction. And then the answer to the question, so what, if we can give that, is in the epilogue. So um, the implications and kind of everything in a book kind of wrapped up in 10 minutes. So once you hear the epilogue, you don't even have to bother buying it. <laughs> epilogue, the future will always find you. The future will always find us, but will we find the future? What happens when your toothbrush is smarter than you? Where do you go? What do you do? What will happen to your business, to your country, to our civilization, or to yourself? I know this may sound ridiculous right now, but to paraphrase Mark Twain, reality is stranger than fiction, with the main difference being that fiction has to be believable, whereas reality doesn't. So let me share a few crazy stories as well as the trends we covered in this book, and you be the judge how unlikely this may turn out to be. You see, half of my wife's family is from Rochester, New York, a town which also used to be known as Kodak City. In 1996, Kodak had a $28 billion market cap and almost 100,000 employees. The company looked invincible. But the future finds everyone. It doesn't matter if you're a billion-dollar company, a lawyer, doctor, dentist with private practice, a coal miner in West Virginia, an oil worker in Alberta, or an office worker in downtown Toronto. The future will always find you. The real question is, will you find the future? Back in 1975, Kodak had invented the first digital camera. The future had already found them. But they didn't want to find the future because Kodak liked their present. Kodak was in the paper and chemicals business, and it didn't pay them to disrupt their own business model. So of course, they refused to embrace digital photography. And by the time they figured it out, Kodak went bankrupt. And it's, if you guys ever drive to Rochester, you can see the effects of that. 100, 120,000, very well-paid job, gone, just like that. Uh, and by the way, probably two-thirds of my wife's family were either directly employed there or indirectly through suppliers were indirectly employed. And around the same time, another company with only 13 employees, by the way, as Kodak was going out of business, another company with only 13 employees that was founded about 18 months before Kodak, uh, before that time, um, was riding the wave of exponential technology and it got acquired for almost a billion dollars. That company, of course, as you already know, was called Instagram. And this is what disruptive change looks like. It means that after the meteorite strike, dinosaurs die out and new species will rise to dominate the environment. This is where many of the dangers and opportunities we face today 
are, and some of us can see the meteorite coming. Speaking of change, a similar process happened in the late 19th and early 20th century when we had electrification. At the time, the major business opportunity was in taking everything and making it electrical. So for example, a company would take a manual water pump and turn it into an electric pump. They might put some old-fashioned stairs together and electrify them to make an escalator. They take a firewood oven and make an electric oven or take a kettle and make an electric kettle. They take a razor and turn it into an electric shaver and take a toothbrush and make an electric toothbrush. All of those things existed before, but now they were much better because they were electrified. Today, we are undergoing a similar process, but we're not putting electricity, we're putting in intelligence. So, in short, we are smartifying things up, we're making them smarter. So we take an electric appliance and we add artificial intelligence. We take a phone and we turn it into a smartphone. We take a car and we turn it into a smart car. We take a watch and we turn it into a smart watch. We take, and we have smart thermostats and smart buildings and smart software and smart appliances. And we haven't even scratched the surface yet. Because you see, we still live in a pretty dumb universe. But things are starting to smarten up. We even have smart toothbrushes now. My toothbrush has 10 different programs and a built-in microchip and a lithium-ion battery. One day, it will connect to the internet, take a saliva DNA sample, and send the information to my doctor. It will tell my dentist how often I brush my teeth and do quick medical and dental exams on me. It will know when I travel, where I go to, whose toothbrush my toothbrush slept next to, and all those things. And you see, there's an arms race going, there's an AI arms race going out, out there right now. Recently, you may have seen in the news, Toronto joined the fray, actually, great news, $100 million to start up the Vector Institute, which is fantastic. Uh, it's, it really puts us on the map. Even though $100 million is not that much, it's a very good start. So there's an AI arms race out there, and everyone wants to be first. From countries like China, the US, and Israel, to companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Baidu. Now, if you look at evolution, it takes 100,000 years to stuff a cubic inch of brain matter into our skulls. And unfortunately, we're pretty much out of space. But technology is moving at an exponential pace in sync with Moore's law and is better by design. It takes roughly a year and a half to double the price performance of a computer. And with the process of smartification, everything around us is a computer. So you see, we don't have cars anymore. We have computers that we drive in. We don't have airplanes anymore. We have computers that we fly in. We don't have buildings anymore, but computers that we live in. They're all getting smarter and smarter, and unfortunately, we're not. So what happens to the 5 million truck drivers when their trucks become smart trucks and can drive on their own? Recently, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who is a media producer and a TV director, and he was telling me that his camera will never be smarter than him, that creativity and art can never be automated. That is, of course, a very common presumption. Everybody thinks that what they're doing is totally irreplaceable. 
that what they do is totally unique and cannot ever be done by a machine, ever. So you see, when Alan Turing, predict, when Alan Turing predicted in 1952 that one day computers will play better chess than humans, people laughed at him. At the time, computers couldn't even play tic-tac-toe, and chess was considered to be the epitome of human intelligence. But in 1997, Deep Blue defeated Garry Kasparov, considered to be the most brilliant and dominant player in the history of chess. In 2011, IBM's Watson vanquished the two best players in the history of Jeopardy. A few months ago, DeepMind's AlphaGo defeated Lee Si-do, Korea's champion Go player. According to some projections, this last event was not supposed to happen for another 10 years or more. So let's not forget that every one of those people was in the genius range of intelligence, not average people like me or you, I imagine. We're talking Gary Kasparov, we're talking Ken Jennings, we're talking pure, pure genius. Um, and of course, when Watson retired from Jeopardy and went into the medical field, it outperformed the team of specialists by 30% in terms of accuracy in medical diagnosis, in oncology and radiology. So if you are worried you may have cancer, are you going to go to a human doctor who is going to give you about 60% accuracy, provided that he has a panel of experts helping him, and provided that he has a two or three decade worth of experience? Or are you, and of course, we, we know most doctors don't operate like that. Or are you going to go to an AI like Watson that's going to give you a 90% plus uh, percent accuracy of diagnosis? I'm here to tell you that our human domain is unfortunately shrinking. AI will change and challenge everything we've gotten used to and comfortable with, and smart people are really getting worried. People like Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Stephen Hawking, Steve Wozniak, and many others have already said publicly that AI might be the end of humanity and that we ought to be very, very careful what happens to us when machines get to be smarter than humans. Someone might ask, what's the big deal about not being the smartest species on the planet? Well, if we look at our cousins, the great apes, who are currently arguably the second smartest species around, we can't fail to see that they're nearly extinct. So why should we be any different? What does this fact also say about us and our stewardship of our planet and about the way we treat others the way we would want to be treated? with respect and dignity, hopefully. You see, technology is a magnifying mirror. It is a mirror because it reflects the engineers, designers, and programmers who make it. But it's also a mirror of humanity in general and all of our collective dreams, hopes, and fears. Our knowledge and ignorance, our strengths and weaknesses, our good and our evil. It is not a normal mirror, however, because technology magnifies and amplifies things, so it often has unforeseen consequences. Th that is both the good and the bad news. Technology and AI in particular is a reflection of who we are. That's why I'm optimistic about our future, because if, if it's a mirror and it reflects who we are, then we really have the chance to make a difference, be it collectively or personally. The bad news is that we can also screw it up really bad. So 
When people ask me if I fear Judgment Day Terminator type scenarios, my answer is no, I don't. I'm not worried about AI turning evil. What I'm really worried about, however, is human stupidity. We know there are people out there today who will kill each and every one of us, themselves included, if they had the chance to do so. That is why humanity is the greatest threat to humanity, to ourselves, to itself, not some artificial or alien intelligence. And you see, one of the things that I do with my customers and clients when we do their strategic analysis is ask, is your business or organization structured around providing the answer or the solution to a problem? Because our greatest strengths are also our greatest weaknesses. We live in an age when answers are free, but good questions can be priceless. The better the question, the better the answer. However, it turns out that answers have a limited lifespan. So holding too tight to an answer can be both costly and deadly. That is why IBM was best positioned to profit from the personal computer revolution, but they missed it. Instead, Apple and Microsoft became giants. Later, they were best positioned to exploit the search engine revolution, but they missed it. Instead, Google became a giant. Google, in turn, was best positioned for the social networking revolution, but they missed it. Instead, Facebook and LinkedIn became giants. Then German and Japanese car makers were best positioned for the electric car revolution, but they nearly missed it. And it seems that Tesla right now is emerging as the leader, even though it's too early to call you know, what's going to happen on that one. But Tesla is definitely emerging the, the leader. If you've seen the news, it recently surpassed uh, GM in terms of market value. In other words, truth, answers, and solutions turn out to be transient. There is no place where the truth is more transient, especially other than technology. So what was true when you were a child in, uh, in technology is probably not true today anymore. Our laws, however, ethics, economics, society, businesses, and even our religions are all a form of technology. Technology that was invented by us to aid and improve our lives. Like all other technologies, they have a context and a timeline, and we are overdue to a major civilization-wide upgrade. So why is the world changing? Well, that's the nature of evolution. Everything changes and everything must adapt. Those who do not simply die and go extinct. It is as true of businesses as it is true of living organisms. Today, we're witnessing exponential changes not only in AI, but also in genetics, robotics, and nanotechnology. These changes are taking less and less time to permeate through our civilization. We are about to undergo, thus, several millennia worth of changes stuffed in the span of several decades. Take longevity, for example. In the past century, we have managed to double the average life expectancy. In the 1900s, for example, the social when social security was introduced for people over 65, the average life expectancy was only 48. So of course, most people never made it to 65, and thus social security was actually not an expensive program to run. It was actually very cheap, because most people were dead way before that. But today, the vast majority of 
us here will actually live way over 65. Each year also, our life expectancy is increasing on average by three months. This progression itself is also accelerating. And there might be a day when every year that we get older, we are able to extend our life by another extra year. And this is what Aubrey de Grey calls longevity escape velocity. So I don't know about you, but I personally, I don't know if I want to be immortal, but I'm pretty sure that I don't want to die when I don't want to die. And the question then is, how will such indefinite life extension impact on the world around us? How will it impact your business or our country? How will it change the meaning of what it means to be human? Speaking of being human, we still don't even have a commonly accepted definition of what it means to be human after thousands of years and many philosophers writing volumes and volumes on topic and poets and, and so on. In fact, when I was interviewed by Professor Hiroshi Ishiguro, or actually, in fact, when I was interviewing, rather, Professor Hiroshi Ishiguro about why he is making robots, he said that he's making robots to find out what being human means. He explained to me that meaning, the meaning of being human is actually in the process of changing, that we are all children of our time, and as time changes, or as the epoch changes, and so do we. First, so first we build the tools, but then the tools build us. So you see, there can't be one static definition of being human, because we are not an entity, but we are rather a process. And so the meaning of being human needs to be rediscovered and redefined in every epoch and by every person again and again. The thing about humans, however, is that we procreate. But recently, or for the last several thousand years, we procreate not only biologically, but also technologically. Robots in particular, or AI in general, are our mind children. So keep in mind that children listen 10% of the time, but watch 100% of the time. And doubly so for AI. And remember that technology is a magnifying mirror. If we want to be safe from human stupidity and artificial intelligence alike, therefore, we must take a good hard look, at the, a good hard look in the mirror and become the living examples of the change we want to see the very best versions of ourselves. This is true personally for us individuals, but also collectively for our companies, organizations, and civilization in general. So we have to be very cognizant and deliberate about the image we want to project in the mirror of technology. We also must get comfortable being uncomfortable and letting go of our old tried and true answers. While we keep asking better questions which will lead us to new and better answers. In fact, all progress basically depends on that. Usually due to the intergenerational gap, the new generation refuses to accept the answers of the old generations and to the amazement of the older generation comes up with new and better answers. And this is how we make progress in history. And so let me ask you again, what will you do when your toothbrush is smarter than you? My promise to you today is that the future will find us all, no matter where we are and what we do. But the question remains, 
will we find the future? Are you, your organization, and our civilization in general going to be a Kodak or an Instagram? More importantly, are we going to go extinct like the dinosaurs? Or are we going to populate the universe like Carl Sagan envisioned in Cosmos? And so in this book, I have offered you 21 visions of the future. I have interviewed many of today's visionaries and futurists. Together, we have painted a picture of the many different possibilities that lie just beyond the horizon. But do not delay in deciding to create your own vision of the future, because the future belongs to those who, to those who create it. So be the author of your own story. Thank you. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. 